You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, but uh, the artist, he was uh, by far the most famous artist to ever come out of the Italian, Italian Renaissance era. And he was, as you can see him here, he was a real Renaissance man. He was a sculptor, a painter, an architect, an engineer, a writer, a poet. And of all his great works and all his different mediums, he was probably most known uh, for what has become known as the, the, the greatest sculpture in world history, which is this masterpiece statue of King David. And I had, I had Bill Jeffrey, our newest staff member, <laughs> edit this uh, statue because he ain't wearing any clothes. And so I just thought, you know, I probably shouldn't put that on the screen. So, but this is King David. This is this, his uh, Michelangelo statue of David. And this was commissioned by the city of Florence in 1501. Um, Michelangelo was just 26 years old when he took on this project. It took him over two years to complete. You can see this today. Uh, and I think it's in the uh, Academia Gallery Museum in Florence. It stands there. It is massive. This thing is 17 feet tall. It weighs over 12,000 pounds, and it was all carved out of one single block of white marble stone. And so when, when, when Michelangelo finally completed this and it was unveiled, like this thing went viral immediately. Like before social media, somehow all the world knew about this. And so people from all over the world, as they still do, came to Florence to behold this thing. And everybody wanted to meet Michelangelo. Who is this guy? Who is this kid? They want to get his autograph. And the, the, the one question that wells up inside every person that stands under the weight of this thing and looks at it is, how did he do that? That's the question that you naturally ask when you encounter greatness, right? Like this, this afternoon, uh, Andrew, when I'm watching uh, Mahomes destroy the Broncos, you know, like I do in multiple times when I'm watching him play, five or six times in the game, I go, how did he do that, right? Because it's like, it's, it's, in, it's inhumanly possible, and yet somehow he pulls it off. Um, so naturally, as everybody comes and looks at this statue, they look at this thing and they go, how did he do this? And Michelangelo's asked this question over and over, how did you transform a single block of stone into this masterpiece? And here's Michelangelo's answer. He reportedly says this. This has become a famous quote of his. Quote, how did you transform this block of stone into this masterpiece? Well, every block of stone, he says, has a statue hidden inside it. And it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. Now listen to this. I looked inside the marble and simply took away the bits that weren't David. That's how I did it. Unbelievable. He, Michelangelo has the ability to look inside this big marble slab and he envisions the finished product. Like he sees the beauty of David buried beneath this stone and he says to transform David and set him free, all I have to do is chisel away and remove the parts that aren't David. Now, I share that story with you because I actually think it illustrates something profound about the human condition. And I think it touches on something you and I feel, and, and that it's a deep, deep core longing that sits, I think, at the heart of every single human being, which is this. 
It's a longing for transformation. Like, in a sense, we're all this block of stone, right? And there are parts of us that just don't fit with who we want to be. Parts of you that don't fit with who you know that you were created to be. We have parts of our character that we know that need to be chiseled away and changed. Or am I the only one, right? We have parts of our character that need to be changed. We have parts of us that just feel stuck. How many of you feel stuck in some stuff and you want to change? We have parts of us that feel stuck in emotional pain, stuck in anxiety. Um, that's half most of my life. Uh, parts of us that are stuck in bad habits and in addiction and in ways of being and doing relationship. And if we're honest, we have these parts of us that we really want to chisel away because they're parts of us that don't belong and they're parts of us that are sabotaging our lives. To be honest, like there are parts of us, things about our character and things about our way of being that just don't fit with who we know we were created to be. And that stuff is destroying our relationships and it's, it's robbing us of joy and of the life we were made to experience. And by the way, so it, in essence, we long to change that. And, and the self-help industry is making billions off of you in this. I read uh, the other day that by 2022... The self-help industry will be worth upwards of $15 billion. You just go on Amazon and search self-help and look at the endless like supply of resources and books there are that promise change. Do this and you can chisel away your anxiety. You can chisel away your waistline. You can emerge your real self. I mean, let me just give you some titles, okay? Here's some books. Um, beautiful, Beautiful You, A Daily Guide to Radical Self-Acceptance. Keep going. Get Out of Your Own Way. Practical Lessons for Conquering Procrastination, Fear, Envy, Neediness, and More. You can chisel all that stuff away. Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived and Joyful Life. Best Self, Only Better. Um, I love that. Uh, Next one. Okay, I'm not going to read this. I had to have Bill Jeffrey edit this as well. Um, So (laughs) I'll just read you the the subtitle. Okay, here's the subtitle. How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. (laughs) That is incredible. Guys, we live in what one writer calls, quote, a self-help therapy technique obsessed age. Why? Why? Why Why all the self-help stuff? Because we all want to chisel away stuff. And because, like, listen, all of us live with a sense in our core that there's a gap between who we are and who we were made to be. And who we want to be. And our deepest desire is to close that gap. In other words, our deepest desire is to transform and to emerge our real selves. And it's, listen, it's not that like we're not all trying to change. I mean, maybe some of you are not. But I think most of us are trying to change. The problem is most of us don't know how to change. And here's the problem with self-help, okay? I'm all, I'm pro self-help, by the way. I think self-help, as long as it's rooted in the scripture, is great. Um, it's truly helpful. Um, but, but, but by itself, self-help will never get you there because here's why, okay? Self-help is built on this idea, this doctrine, that it's on you to transform yourself and you just need enough willpower and you can do it. Like if you just get the right techniques and strategy and you have enough willpower, you can chisel away these parts and you can change yourself. You know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is Everybody in here has a limited supply of willpower, right? And mine usually runs out by about 9.30 a.m. That's, that's why it's easier for me to eat healthy in the morning than it is in the evening. 
That's why most of the stupid things humans do happen at night. Like most of the regretful things that we do happen at night. Because at the end of the day, just like your phone has a battery life, like your willpower has a battery life. It has a, only a certain amount of power to it, and it's extremely limited. And, and again, I'm not saying willpower is not good. It's just not good enough. You can make some small changes. You can chisel away some stuff out of your life. And you can make some surface-level changes, but when it comes to the deep character change, willpower gets creamed every time. Like it, it, just, just go out this afternoon and just grit your teeth and say, I will be patient. I, will, I like will be a loving person, and I will be kind. And then come babysit my children and like see how long that lasts for you. Like it's, just, it's, it's not enough to get you there. Listen, when you bump up against the deeply ingrained patterns in your soul, when you bump up against the emotional processes that are driving you, like, listen, men, as much as you'd like to think that you're purely logical, did you know that you're highly emotional? And the stuff that's driving you is emotional. The reason why we perform is because we don't know what to do with our shame. The reason why we look at porn is because we don't know what to do with our loneliness. And the reason why you whatever is because you don't know what to do with the grief that you carry. When you bump up against the emotional stuff cooking in you that is driving your compulsive behavior, when you bump up against your addictions and the trauma and the wounds and the generational sin in your bones, <laughs> the, the attachment patterns that you've inherited and developed and the trust issues that you bring into every relationship, listen, when you bump up against that stuff, willpower does not, never will ever stand a chance. So here's the thing I want to talk about this morning. Willpower is good, it's just not good enough. And what Paul wants us to see in 2 Corinthians 3 is you need a power outside of yourself to emerge your true self, to truly be free, to be transformed. It doesn't happen through the willpower, it happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and let's just unpack everything I just said. Here's, here's the Word of God. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom! We're talking about freedom this morning. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into the image of God with ever-increasing glory. And this transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're a disciple of Jesus, God didn't just save you to leave you where you are, but he saved you to change you. He saved you to transform you. He saved you for freedom, Paul says. And he made you... What he's doing is you're in the process of being saved and transformed back into, he says, the image of God. Can I pause? Let me pause on this for just put your finger on the word image or your eye on the word image because it's telling a big story. Okay, And here's the story. Paul's actually getting at the thing in your gut that, that, that wants you to change. You and I were made in the image of God, to use the language of the Bible which means we were made to reflect his image and his likeness, his character, the, the, his moral beauty, the way he deals with people. Like We were made to reflect the image of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all that good stuff. We were made to reflect that because you were made in God's image. Now, raise your hand if you're there. Okay, None of us are there. The reason none of us are there is because of this thing called sin, because of the fall and the fact that we've all sinned against God and sinned against one another, here's what's happened. The image of God in us is still there. Like the divine thumbprint, it's still there. There's an echo of it. There's a faint imprint. 
But the image of God has been horribly marred and been out of shape in us. It's been wildly distorted. And our deepest longing, the thing in our gut is we want to be renewed. And we carry around in us, like I don't, I, don't, I don't care what your theology is or like if you're a Christian or not, nobody doesn't walk around with something deep inside of them that says something's off in me, something's broken inside me, something desperately needs to change. We'll reach for any self-help strategy or substance or addiction or anything to try to fix that. Because we all know something is wrong with me on the inside. Now, that's the problem with self-help. Because if I'm the problem, I can't be the solution. Hello, right? Like if the problem is on the inside of me, let's just let's go to logic for a second. If the problem is on the inside of me, it stands to reason I need a solution and a power on the outside of me in order for this thing on the inside of me to be healed and transformed. Well, here's the good news. Paul says if you're a disciple of Jesus, the power you need is the Holy Spirit. And it's a power that comes from the outside. And check this out. It's a power that has actually come to dwell on the inside of you. That's what's amazing. So if you want to change, let me just tell you, you need access to the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you get access to the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to look very far. Because God has sent His very Spirit and His empowering presence to come and dwell in you. Even as I say that, the, the like, the, oh my gosh, like that blows my hair back reality. We don't feel the weight of that. I don't, I don't feel as moved by that as I should. But here, here's what you have to realize. The Spirit of God's taken up residence in you. It's, a, it's what the, all the Old Testament believers look forward to. And it's a reality that is ours in the new covenant of Jesus. It's the reason why, by the way, you no longer have to go to a tabernacle or a temple to connect with God's presence. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, this is just mind-blowing. If you're in Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? God's empowering presence has come to dwell inside you. Here's why that's such good news, okay? It's such good news for many reasons. Number one, it means like you'll never be alone. He'll never leave you and forsake you. It means that you'll, you, you, you're always can have access to God's presence. It means you can never be separated from His love. You know what else it means? It means that if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, you can change. And not only can you change, but you will change. In fact, right here where you sit right now this morning, if, you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the Spirit of God is in you, right here, right now, even if you can't feel it or you can't see it or you can't detect it or you can't measure it, you are being changed. That's what Paul says in this passage. Look at it again. Don't take my word for it. Look at, look at God's word. We all, he's talking to disciples of Jesus when he says we all, how many disciples of Jesus is Paul talking to when he says we all? How many disciples of Jesus is Paul talking to when he says we all? All of you, yeah, right. This is, this is a promise for every disciple. Even if you're, listen, even if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you don't know my story. And you don't know the baggage I carry. And you don't know how addicted and broken and strung out I am. And you don't know like the things I keep calling back to and the things that I don't think I'll ever change. Let, let me, listen to me. We all, Paul says, if you're in Christ, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are right now being transformed into the image of Jesus. And this transformation is something that the Holy Spirit is doing in you 
right now. Here's, why it's so, here's this, what's so mind-blowing about this to me. We need a power on the outside of us if we're going to chisel away the stuff that doesn't belong and we're going to become who God made us to be. And what's amazing is the Spirit of God, the power that we need, has come to live inside you as the divine sculptor. So whereas Michelangelo is like taking this big block of stone and working from the outside in to, to bring out David... The Spirit of God comes to live in you as this divine sculptor and is working from the inside out to set you free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Where's the Spirit of the Lord? He's in me. He's in you. And there's freedom in that place. Are you guys with me on this? And He's transforming you from the inside out. He's chiseling and shaping and molding and sculpting to release you to be the person Jesus created you to be and saved you to be. And to experience the abundant life that you were made for in Christ. Like this, this to me is like apex, good news, glory of the gospel. Here, here's the way New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says it. And he's an expert on the Holy Spirit. And I can't say this better than him. He says, however much we may wish it otherwise, when we receive the Spirit at conversion, divine perfection does not set in. But check this out. Divine infection does. We have been invaded by the living God himself in the person of his spirit whose goal is to infect us thoroughly with God's own likeness. If you're in Christ, you've been infected, hopefully not with COVID, but with the spirit and the power of God, and that infection is coursing through your veins. It's beginning to permeate your body and your mind and your soul, and it's only a matter of time before the gap closes and you emerge transformed into the image of Jesus. Like, do you realize that day is coming? And wherever you are in the process, you're right where God wants you, by the way. Now, Fee goes on to say this. Let's put this on the screen. Paul's phrase for this infection is the fruit of the Spirit. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, good. The coming of the Spirit with the renewing of our minds gives us a heavenly appetite for this fruit. We long for this. The growing of this fruit is the long way on the journey of Christian conversion, the long obedience in the same direction. And it is altogether the work of the Spirit in our lives. But check this out. This does not thereby intend passiveness on the part of the believer. That's what I want to talk about moving forward. The Spirit produces the fruit. How? As believers continually walk with the Spirit's help. Let me... Let me just stay with me. Let me retranslate that a little bit. What Fee is getting at is that when it comes to your transformation, the good news is the Spirit of God, the power of God, He does all the heavy lifting. But that doesn't mean that you and I don't have a role to play in this process. And our role, Fee says, he says this, look at this, look at the last quote. It's the Spirit's job to produce the fruit. That's the transformation. It's our job to continually walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to know what your role is? This is like, this is your role. You, you, for us, our role in this process of transformation is simply to learn what it means to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's not, by the way, Gordon Fee's, he's not making that up. He's just quoting Paul in Galatians 5. So here's what I want to do. I want to actually go to Galatians 5 and I just want to talk for, for the rest of our time about... Because like, we, we have this amazing power and resource that dwells within us as the, as the Spirit of God. How do you like tap into that? 
How do you learn how to cooperate with the Spirit? Because listen, listen to me. This is a relationship, so you have to cooperate. There's this great quote from Augustine. I think we do have this. Yeah, I think this is my favorite quote ever. Without God, I can't, but without me, God won't. Without God, I can't. I'll never heal. I'll never grow. I'll never be set free from this, the enslaving power of whatever has you. Like, I'll never change. I'll never, I can't save myself. I can't change. Without God, I can't. Or to quote Jesus in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So thanks for the confidence booster, Jesus. Without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. So because God's relational and he, desire, he loves you and desires relationship with you, He requires your participation in this. So if you're with me, what I want to do in the rest of the time is I want to, I want to go to Galatians 5, and I just want to talk about how do we cooperate with the Spirit, or to use Paul's language, how do we keep in step with and walk in the Holy Spirit? Are you with me? Galatians 5, let's go there. Paul says this, verse 16. Notice there's two commands that bracket this passage. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. It's a command, not a suggestion. Verse 25, then he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And, and by the way, the way this is written in Greek, it's an ongoing reality. So if you were to translate this more literally, you would, it would say, Keep on keeping in step with the Spirit. And of course, the question we have to ask is, Well, what does that mean? I don't I can't see the spirit. I don't know like where where is he even like how do you walk with the spirit and keep in step with the spirit? And I'll I'll try to illustrate this for you. Um every illustration breaks down, but I'll do my best. So a couple nights ago, it was one of those warm days we had this week. And um my youngest daughter, we call her Peach, uh wanted me to take her on a walk after dinner. It's about seven o'clock at night, it's already dark. And she says, But just you and me, Dad, okay? And so I was like, Okay, all right. So we slip our shoes on and we're, so her sisters don't see us and we sneak out the back door, you know, and go through the garage and we're on this little adventure together. And she tells me as we start walking down the street, no exaggeration on this, she just looks at me and says, I'm the leader, Dad, okay? So you do whatever I say. And so, I'm, and this is really kind of a game, it's the game of her, it's called life to her, but this is the way she functions. So I said, okay, sure, honey, like whatever, whatever you say. And there's times where she wants to jog and run on this little journey, and I have to run with her. <laughs> There's times when she wants to, my neighborhood, the Valentine neighborhood is, uh, uh, um, uh, Valentine neighborhood, that's the neighborhood I lived in in Kansas City. Walnut Valley neighborhood, there we go, um, is hilly. It's your neighborhood, Robert. It's hilly, right? So she wants to run up these hills and I'm like, come on. She wants to run down hills. She wants to cut through people's yards. And sometimes she wants to slow down and meander and mess with stuff. And at one point, she sees a frog hopping across the road. So she says, Dad, get your, get your phone out and turn your flashlight on. And let's, we get down on, the, on all fours on the road. And she scoops up this frog. And she's holding it. And she wants me to see it. And then she wants me to hold it. She wants me to put it in my pocket. She wants us to take it home. She's already named it. And so we're studying the frog and looking at the frog. And then she wants to skip and hop and run. And then she wants to get on her bike and wants me to keep up with her on her bike. And I'm just... And so it's this whole journey of about a 30-minute journey that we go on. And my job on this trip was simply to be present to her, to go at her pace, and to do whatever she said. And that's pretty much exactly about what it means to walk by the Spirit. It, to walk by the Spirit means 
You're led by the Spirit. So if He wants to cut through somebody's yard, you cut through their yard. And if He says, pick up the pace, Adam, I need you to, I need you to run and meet me here, then I run. If He says, slow down, which by the way is what He's saying to most of us, slow down. If He says, slow down, then okay, we, okay, I'll slow down and I'll move at this pace. If He says, stop, I want to like, I want you to notice this, this proverbial frog or whatever. Like, I want to play with this. I want you to put your, I want, I want to focus on this. Then you stop and you focus on it. It's, Walking by the Spirit is you say yes to the Spirit and you, you give up the illusion of control and you live a life surrendered to the will of the Spirit. I don't care, man. You, you say jump, I say how high. What do, what do you want to do? I think uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says it better than I can. So here's what McKnight says. He says, Life in the Spirit is the life of a person who is surrendered by letting the Spirit have complete control. <laughs> There's something in us that doesn't like that. But we see here also that one does not gain this by discipline or by mustering up the energy. So it's not about willpower. One does not huddle with oneself in the morning, gather together his or her forces, and charge onto the field of life full of self-determined direction. Rather, the Christian life is a life of consistent surrender to the Spirit. In other words, it's a life of increasingly giving up. A life of increasingly embracing your limits and your dependence and your weakness and your neediness and all the other stuff that you, that you and I try to cope with and bury. And it's just a life of repeatedly coming to the end of yourself. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And if for anything like me, it's not an easy thing. 2020 has been hard for most of us. And it's been hard on our staff. It's been hard on our pastors. And I, I remember early on in the quarantine, our pastors and our staff anxiously trying to get, figure this out and like get control of this situation because how do you shepherd a flock that can't gather? You want to talk about anxiety and like up losing sleep. Like how do we not keep people from being, these are, these are the questions we wrestled with together. How do you not keep people from, from falling away? Because... The enemy can pick people off a lot easier when they're isolated. But we can't gather. So, like, what, how do we not lose people in this season? How do we care for people in a pandemic? Like, we were, we were like, we were, we were so worked up, and, and rightfully so. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine around my anxiety about this. And he said, Adam, in a sense, this is a real gift to you. It's like, what are you, What? And it upset me, and I'm like, how, what do you, how do you figure that this is a gift? And he said, God is inviting you in this season to give up the control that you thought you had but never actually had and to finally learn what it means, Adam, to walk by the Spirit. And then he said, the problem is, and he starts like meddling now, like stepping on my toes, the problem is you, for most of your life and your leadership and ministry, you've pretty much been able to get by on your own like competency. Like you've pretty much been able to lead out of your own resources and what little like giftedness and talents that you have. And now for the first time perhaps ever in your life, you're having to learn how to lead not out of competence, but out of pure and total dependence on the Holy Spirit. Thanks. Like I didn't really want to hear that. And what my friend was getting at is that it's give it, give it for me to give up control and admit, finally come to the end of myself, admit, like, I don't have the resources 
to chisel this stuff away, like whatever this is, like to figure this out, I don't have what it takes. And for me to, for me to give up the illusion of control and surrender is terrifying. It's not easy. It's, it's, it doesn't come natural to me or to you. And if we're honest, it feels like death. Because in a sense it is. But here's why. Because there's something in us that is resistant to this. Now, what is that? That's what I, I want to answer that question. Why are we so resistant to walking by the Spirit, which is to say surrendering all of life to the Spirit? What is this thing in us that makes that such a daily fight? Well, Paul says it's this thing called the flesh. So let's, let's keep going and look at verse 16 in Galatians 5. Here's what he says. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Pay attention to this. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. Therefore, there's a conflict going on, he says. That's the Greek word for war. They are in conflict with each other. There is a war waging in your soul, Paul says, and it's a war between the Spirit and what he calls the flesh. And this is a theme that runs throughout Paul's letters. Now, to get this, we have to ask, what's the flesh? What is this thing in me that needs to be chiseled away? What is this thing? Well, here's, here's a definition that I've compiled from several places, okay? When Paul talks about your flesh... And I'm, I'm going to get a little bit academic here, but I need you to hang with me because we need to get this. Let this sink in. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about the part of you that is bent on self-help and doing life apart from God because it's too afraid and too prideful to trust. So self, the flesh is this thing in you that says, mm-mm, mm-mm, my way, self-help. Self-salvation strategies. It's the thing that wants to keep you living a life of self-protection with God because, because this is way too vulnerable and way too scary. And quite frankly, I'm too prideful to do this. I'd rather figure it out on my own, right? That, that's, the, that's what the flesh is. It's that thing in us. Or to quote John Tyson, here's, what, here's how John Tyson's pastor uh, says it. This passage is defining flesh as those parts of ourselves, check this out, and the systems they create that exist in rebellion to God and seek to function as coping mechanisms to keep us from depending on God. I think that's probably the best definition of the flesh I've ever heard. So what Paul's saying is when you come to faith in Jesus, you have a new life in the Spirit and a new identity in the Spirit and... You've got this other thing in you called the flesh. or he, In other places, he calls it the old self. A lot of, of teachers in the way of Jesus call it the false self because it's at war with your true self, who you are actually in Christ and who you are becoming in Christ. The flesh is at war with your spirit-led self, and it wants to pull you in a different direction. And it uses all kinds of strategies. Right here, look, systems and strategies to keep you disconnected from God and to keep you in self-protection from having to surrender to God. You with me? Okay, what are those systems and strategies of the flesh that we use? Well, it's what Paul's getting at when he talks about the acts and the works of the flesh. So let's look at that. Verse 19 as we continue in Galatians 5. The acts or works, or you could say strategies of the flesh, are obvious. 
Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And this is the most important phrase. And things like these. So what Paul's doing is important for us to notice. Look, he's not giving you an exhaustive list. These are the only strategies your flesh will use. What he's doing is he's giving you categories, examples of the kinds of strategies your flesh will reach for to keep you from having to surrender and trust God. And if you take this list and you chop it up, there's basically three broad categories of coping strategies that your flesh will use, again, to keep you from having to give up control. And they are self-indulgence, religion, and relational patterns. So let me, let me just take, say a couple things about each of these, and let's pay attention to where we see this in our lives, okay? I'll pay attention to where I see this in my life, like I've been doing all week, and you pay attention to where the Spirit of God wants you to see this in your life, okay? First, self-indulgence. Um, five words in this list have to do with self-indulgence, a lot of it around sexuality, because it's an easy strategy for your body and your heart to reach for. It's a quick um, coping mechanism. So he mentions sexual immorality, which is the Greek word for porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. Um, this refers to any sexual activity, by the way, outside of God's design for marriage between a husband and a wife. Then he mentions impurity, which is a term for sexual impurity. He mentions debauchery, which means excess or lack of restraint. So think like consumerism, filling yourself with stuff. And then in verse 21, he mentions drunkenness and orgies, so substance abuse and just rampant, you know, sexual consumerism. What, what all of these have in common is they're all about indulging yourself with comfort and pleasure. And at, at its core, listen to me, at its core, self-indulgence is always about numbing or escaping something that hurts so bad you don't want to feel it or face it. And if you're human, I think you are, and your heart works... All of us came into this room this morning with pain in our lives that we don't want to face and don't want to deal with. And if you just do a quick glance over your week, you'll see all sorts of strategies and ways that you've tried to escape that, bury that, and numb that. And some of us were doing those things last night, right? Self-indulgence at its core is about numbing and escaping something that you're too afraid to feel and too afraid to trust God with because it hurts too badly to go there. For some of you, it's deep father wounds. God have mercy. Sexual abuse and like stuff you've done, stuff that's been done to you. Like it just hurts too bad to to open ourselves up to that. So I would rather escape it, numb it, and I got to figure out how to do that. It's too hard to trust God with that because then I got to, if I have... If I, actually, if, I actually, if I actually give this to God, it means I have to face it and I have to actually open myself up to it. And I'm just afraid I'm going to be blown apart by that. And now as you look at this, so by the way, internal family systems theory calls these strategies firefighters because they're just trying to extinguish the pain. And by the way, the, what would be the ultimate strategy of trying to extinguish the pain? It would, it would be suicide, right? Like that's the ultimate escape numbing strategy of the flesh to try to put out the pain because something hurts so bad and I can't trust God with this or anybody else. I've got to find a way to end it, right? 
And as you look at this list, some of you look at this list and you're like, well, okay, I'm with you to a degree. I'm like, yes, I've got stuff I'm numbing and stuff I'm trying to escape. But like, I'm not like acting out sexually to do it. And I'm not like giving into substance abuse, right? Because Paul talks about drunkenness and sexual immorality. And like, I'm not doing that stuff. So like, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay, right? Well, wrong. <laughs> because the flesh is real sneaky. And it, it has, again, remember, these are, he, these, are, these are examples. It's not an exhaustive list. There are all sorts of firefighter strategies and escape-numbing strategies of the flesh that look a lot, that don't look as bad, right? So here's, here's an example. Scholars talk about, uh, talk about these, for example. Um, excessive daydreaming. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to think like that maybe not necessarily be sinful, but it is something your flesh will use to hijack you from giving up control and surrendering to God. It's crazy. Mindless strolling through social media, binging on screens, over-exercising, over-eating, over-cleaning, over-spending, over-sleeping, excessive entertainment, basically consumerism. All these are strategies of the flesh that, that, that keep you from being vulnerable and trusting God with pain you don't want to deal with. Now, the question that we have to ask is where, where do we see... Where do we see these escaping, coping mechanisms in our lives? What, is, what are you doing to try to numb? What is your flesh reaching for to try to numb? These are strategies of self-indulgence. Paul also talks about stra- religious strategies that the false self. This is where the false self gets real sneaky. Um, he talks about idolatry and witchcraft in verse 20. Don't just think like Wiccan stuff or like pagan stuff. He's, he's just talking about religious stuff. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, like, think like Pharisees and think like good cultural Christians, good old guys and gals who are in church every Sunday, who read the Bible and who do all the right stuff. But if you press into their motivations, the real reason they're trying to do that stuff is because just like pagans are trying to manipulate a higher power, we're just trying to put God in our pocket and get control of him so that we can do what he wants us to do. Like, don't, that lives in me, man. That's alive in me. I have a religious false self that I hide, I've hidden my whole life. Um, I have a pastoral false self. My flesh will wrap around my identity as a pastor to make me look good. And that's where the flesh is real sneaky. It's not always about drunkenness and orgies and pornography. Like sometimes the flesh doesn't want to make you look bad. It wants to make you look good, really good, as a way of you maintaining some illusion of control and keeping yourself from having to fully repent and open yourself up to God and surrender your life to Him because that's terrifying. It's terrifying. So you have these religious strategies of the flesh doing all the right stuff to manipulate and get control of God. And then lastly, this is where I want to talk about this for just a second, okay? Relational patterns. This is a primary strategy of the flesh, to help you live a life of self-protection. Eight out of the 15 things Paul mentions in this list are about how we relate to one another. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. God have mercy on us. Like He's saying that you, you, here's a surefire sign you're not walking by the Spirit when you see this stuff alive in your relationships. Because this stuff right here is a surefire, it's like the blinking lights on the dashboard. This is a surefire example that I'm operating in the flesh and I'm living a life of self-protection because I don't trust God and I don't trust you. 
And in, in, in my strat, the strategy of self-protection is I'm going I'm to live my life in a, in a posture of attacking and defending with you. And it's what, to put it in Paul's words, let me put this on the screen. He goes back up in verse 15 in Galatians 5, and, and attacking and defending, he calls it biting and devouring. And he says, if you guys want to bite and devour each other, you better watch out because you're going to destroy God's church. He says in Corinthians, watch out to the one who destroys the temple that God is building in the Holy, for the Holy Spirit to dwell. You guys are going to destroy each other. And this is why, oh man, as pastors, we have such a burden right here because... Because we have, we have a, in this cultural moment, we have a very unique opportunity to display to the world that we are Jesus' disciples in the way that we love one another, in the way that we love others. And so many of us, myself included, okay, are squandering it. Because we've adopted this cultural doctrine that I can't just disagree with somebody without demonizing them. Look, there's no such thing as tolerance anymore. So I, I've got to talk. I can't. I'm, just hang with me. Um, my grandparents' generation like, had, a different, had, a, had a true definition of tolerance. Do you realize that to tolerate something, tolerance is predicated upon disagreement. <laughs> so for me to actually tolerate you, I have to, first of all, disagree with you. And tolerance is this thing that says, well, I disagree with you, and I don't like where you're coming from, but I love you, and I respect you because you're a human made in God's image. Well, that's gone. Nowadays, if, if, if you disagree with me, you're intolerant and you're a bigot and you're a devil and a demon. And so, that, listen, that has come into the church. And so there's dissensions and factions and, and discord and, and we're dividing over everything and, and you, you're, we're polarized. So here's just some silly examples. It's like, and these are, these are among Christians, it's like you're either for masks or you're against masks, Right? And people are either idiots because they wear masks and they're just scaredy cats or the other people are, are murderers because they don't, <laughs> they don't wear masks, right? And there's no room for some disagreement or conversation around this. It's just that everybody's a demon who disagrees with me. We're either, you're either taking the coronavirus way too seriously or you're not taking it seriously enough. You either have to be for racial justice or for the police, Wait, like, what? What? I can't be for both. Like, you have to either be all Democrat or all Republican. And the, the way we are disagreeing with people is, is dude, it's, atro- it's atrocious. And social media has created, and by the way, I'm stepping on my toes here. So I just want you to know that. But like social media has created a platform for, the, for this stuff to just like, ooze out of us effortless, effortlessly. Um, and I can be just as guilty. Brian Roberts, in a Relevant Magazine article I read recently, said this. Now hold on to your horses because this is a powerful quote. He's talking about just the political discourse that Christians get involved in. He says, political discourse is the Las Vegas of Christianity. <laughs> the environment in which our sin is excused. Hate is winked at. Fear is perpetuated and strife is applauded. Go wild, Christ follower. Your words have no consequences here. Jesus doesn't live in Vegas. Not only are believers excused for their political indiscretions, but they're often applauded for committing them. Slander is explained away as righteous anger. Winning arguments are esteemed higher than truthful ones, whether or not the facts align. And those who stir up dissension, which is, by the way, one of those works of the flesh, 
are given the pulpit. The political process is dirty and broken and far from Jesus. Paranoia and vitriol are hardly attractive accessories for the bride of Christ. And then Paul gives us this warning in verse 21 that should shake us in our boots. If you keep on doing this stuff, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's not trying to like steal your assurance of salvation. He's trying to give no room for complacency here. And he's trying to get our attention to say, when we act this way, we are being destroyed by the flesh. We're not walking in the spirit. We are deforming, not trans. We are being deformed, not transformed into the image of Jesus. Those who keep on living like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord to us. So there has to be a better way. And Paul gives us a better vision, a vision of transformation, a vision of true self-living, a vision of of a spirit-led church and people. And here's this vision. He, He continues, verse 22 and verse 23, the fruit of the spirit This is the fruit of transformation God wants to do in your life. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance, which is patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. It's self-control. And this is the life everybody longs for. Even if you're not a Christian, nobody reads this list and goes, okay, love, joy, peace, patience, pass. I'll pass. I don't really want... This is the life, this is what every self-help book is trying to accomplish for you. But it just can't seem to chisel away the stuff that's getting in the way of that. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And if, if you notice, okay, notice this, the contrast between the strategies of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The strategies of the flesh are things that we do, and the fruit of the Spirit are things that the Spirit has to do. None of these are commands. Look at this. If you read this, if oh, Paul's saying just be more loving, be more joyful, have more peace, then like, I'm telling you, just go out and try that. The willpower won't, won't be enough to get you there. I'm just going to be a loving person, and then bam, you're confronted with a 30-year-old wound of bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, or somebody cuts you off in traffic, or there's an enemy, you have to love your enemy. Like, it just, it just won't work. It's something the Spirit of God has to do. So the only thing we're commanded in this whole passage is to walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And I realize as I say that, there's some of you, if you're anything like me, you're like, well, man, I'm trying my my best here. And I look at, I have a lot of moments where I look at where I'm at right now, and I look at my character and my way of being, and I look at where I want to be and where God's called me to be and created me to be and what He's promised for me and all the fruit of the Spirit, and then I look at where I'm at now, and all I see is the distance and the gap. And I'm doing everything I know how to walk in the Spirit, and that the gap is it's just not closing. And if that's, if that's where you are, I want, to just, I want to end with a word of encouragement, okay? We're almost done. I want you to put your eyes on the word fruit. Because I think Paul wants to really encourage us here as we come to the end of this passage. There's something so special about a botanical metaphor, about him describing the work of transformation as fruit. Because what he's saying is, fruit uh, fruit growth is gradual. 
You, you can't actually see it happening. You, it takes time to measure it. It's like my children. I can't see my, no matter how hard I focus, I can sit and watch them all day. And I can't see my children actually growing. But then all of a sudden, one of them comes walking down the hall or strolling across the room or, or like laughing at the dinner table. And I'm like, who is this kid? Like there's this beautiful young woman in there. There's this teenager or something. There's like, there's all this growth that I, that I all of a sudden can see. And growth in Christ, the deep character transformation happens just like that. It's, guys, it takes time. My, my friend and mentor, Rich Plass, says it like this. Transformation or maturity is a journey, not a quick trip. That's a metaphor you need to keep in front of you. It's a journey, not a quick trip. And then he says you don't have to be in a hurry to get there. You just have to be willing to go. Are you just willing to walk in the Spirit? And he'll take you there. Rich goes on and says this in his book. The truth about significant soul transformation is this. Change is possible, but it's harder than we want and takes longer than we expect. Harder than you want and takes longer than you expect. You can't, you can't hop on Amazon and order you some kindness and like in prime two-day shipping, you've got it. Like, you can't microwave character. You can't fast forward this stuff. You can't pray earnestly for peace and then get it and then expect to just live in perfect peace. You're, you'll, have, you'll have some breakthrough moments here, but the, the deep soul transformation takes time. And here's the hard part for all of us, the real reason why we struggle. It's out of our control. Our only job is to be open to the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, or to use Jesus' language in John 15. If you want to bear fruit, you just abide in the vine. And, and the, last, the, the last piece of encouragement I want to say here on this is, is this. I'm not saying that we don't need to focus on the areas where we need to grow. For the record, you'll never hear me say that. Um, all those coping mechanisms we walk through, like we need to do some self-evaluation and talk about where do we see these categories showing up in our lives of indulgence and religious and, and relational patterns. Like, I'm not saying that we don't need to focus on the areas we need to grow, but I am saying this. Robert, Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, has a great quote where he says, for every look at your sin, would you please just take 10 looks at Jesus? So like for every time you look at like this addictive pattern you can't break or this thing you can't heal from, this thing that's like jamming up your life, this, this deep character flaw, and every time you look at it and you just sort of like feel so defeated, every time you look at that stuff, would you just take 10 looks at Jesus? Because the, the radical reality is he already lives inside of you through the Spirit alongside all that other stuff, and he sees it, and he loves you still. That's mind-blowing. And there's this principle, this radical principle of you become what you behold. So like, the, like to go back to our passage that we opened with, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I'm going to read the ESV translation because I, I like it here. He says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of Jesus, beholding, looking at Jesus, are being transformed. Um. Again, I'm not saying don't look at the areas we need to grow, but I'm saying you need to look at Jesus a whole lot more. Uh, Facebook reminded me this week uh, on Time Hop that it was a year ago this week that we taught our middle child how to ride a bicycle, Susanna. And in the video, you can tell she's really scared and she's really frustrated because she keeps wrecking her bike and all this kind of stuff. 
and you can see Carrie behind her trying to get her started. And you, 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 know, you can see me up in the front, or you can hear me. I'm actually videoing. And I'm saying, um, it's okay, honey. Like, I, I've got you. If you fall down, Dad will pick you up. You, I keep saying over and over, you just keep looking at me, and you keep pedaling, and you'll get there. You just, keep, you just keep your eyes on Dad, and you just keep pedaling, honey, and you'll, you'll get there. And if you fall down along the way, I'll come pick you up. But, like, you just keep, you keep looking at me, and you keep pedaling. And some of you in this, in this room this morning or watching online, you look at the, the strategies of the flesh, you look at the stuff in your life that you want to chisel away, and you're like, God, have mercy. I'll, I don't think I'll ever get there. And the word of the Lord for you this morning is you, you keep beholding Jesus. Listen to me. You just keep looking at Jesus and keep peddling, and you'll get there. And thank God we're not saved by our peddling, but we're saved by His grace. This whole thing is couched in grace. It's the beauty of it all. And, and you know, each week as we come to this, this, this meal that we're about to share, that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. You know what Paul says in Galatians 5.24? We didn't even look at this. Paul says when Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross, your flesh, your false self was crucified with him, which means the false self flesh has been mortally wounded. It's bleeding out. Its days are numbered. You are being transformed. And when Jesus walks out of the grave, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, into a a new reality. You you are made new. You have new life, a spirit-filled life coursing through your veins. And so as we eat and drink this meal, do it with thanksgiving and joy, knowing that your transformation, your salvation doesn't ride on you, but like Jesus has done all the heavy lifting for you. And I'm going to ask the band as they come back up, I just want to, I want to meditate on this verse as we end. This is Jesus um, in uh, Luke's gospel, and this is the message paraphrase, and, and this is really the invitation for all of us this morning, whether you're a believer or not. And the invitation from Jesus is this. If you want to experience salvation and transformation, you follow me and I'll show you how. I'll show you how to be human. I'll show you how to change. I'll show you the way. You follow me and I'll show you how. And then he says this. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. Dying to yourself is the way. My way to finding yourself your true self.